FASWA is a podcast about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit saswhat.com. This is Saswa, a podcast about Bigfoot. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Seth Breedlove. I'm joined tonight by my pal, Mark Matsky. Greetings from Southeast Ohio, which is not that far away from Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And my other, fact. my other pal, Brandon Dalo. Hello, hello. And uh, this is a catch-up episode of Sasswat because we missed a couple weeks. And then by the time you're hearing this... Man, I'm thinking I might go crazy this week and release two episodes of Sasswat. Whoa. We'll see. I'm, I, there's a chance I might throw up the behind-the-scenes one tonight. Um, we'll see what happens. Uh, so anyway, we wanted to do a catch-up episode. We are going to, first of all, Graham Brownlow sent us a detailed PDF called Some Economic Thoughts on the Bigfoot Business, and it got lost in the shuffle of the last few weeks of craziness. So I need to get to that email i have not forgotten it i mean i did forget it but i just found it again so now i'm not going to forget it um but we want to go through some of these other emails we've gotten and, and kind of discuss them we got something back on august 11th i think we read this i hope yes we did because he talked about harrison Hot Springs. so graham um we're going to touch on your email and your pdf in the next episode as long as matsky promises to remind me um, oh yes we'll get to it we will not let that drop. We will not. Uh, but we did get an uh, email from David Moore, and uh, should we t- should we do this now? Maybe we'll do this at the back half of the show. Yeah. So we'll start off and kind of catch up. I mean, um, we need to get a running start into that. Yeah, particular topic. Yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna get into this email, uh, but first we wanted to talk with uh, Brandon and Mark. So I was in Florida for like eight or nine days. Actually, it wasn't just Florida. Uh, we drove through, we spent our first night in South Carolina, which I thought you would appreciate, uh, Mark, cause we mm-hmm. were probably not very far from David Floyd, who right. I thought of the entire time I was down there and I meant to email him and be like, Hey, like we just drove through Charleston, but then I never did. Um, but and that's kind of, he's listening right now. Probably, probably in the dark, <laughs> uh, his Sunday night ritual, <laughs> uh, so he's crying. Good yeah. job. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were right in that area and then we drove down into Orlando obviously the rest of the time and then we I will say where we stayed in Orlando was not Orlando it was outside of Orlando probably half hour outside of town and we were in a pretty not desolate like there were a lot of condos and stuff in the area but being there you know how you can kind of tell what an area would have been like before they developed it mm-hmm. that was kind of what this was like and it was like staying in the friggin jungle like there was a woods <laughs> there was a forest behind our condo and i just kept looking for a skunk ape like i, I thought if there's a skunk ape it's got to be right in that tiny tiny patch of woods that they've actually left instead of <laughs> bulldozing it down to build another condo <laughs> Uh, but that was kind of cool. And then we came back. Oh, and Bigfoot related. We did get to, I didn't go on the ride, but we 
saw the uh, Yeti uh, expedition. What is that ride? Expedition Everest? Yep. Yep. Okay. That's right. So that was cool. They they do a lot of like Yeti themed stuff uh, in that area and and cool stuff too. Not just like oh, there's a Bigfoot, but like these really cool kind of like tribal. They look, you know, kind of like someone wood carved. I mean, obviously it's Disney, so like the theming's brilliant. But it looks like these authentic carvings of like this ape like creature, and that was really cool. And then inside the queue is the uh, the Yeti track that uh josh gates found on that episode of uh destination truth Truth, that (laughs) uh so, so kind of like bigfoot related that was cool we came back and stayed in savannah for a night which was actually two nights we stayed out on tybee island which is this really historic island right outside of savannah it's really cool a lot of ghost stories out there. Supposedly, while we were in Savannah, I kept being told by people that Savannah is the most haunted city in America. Um, I didn't see a single ghost while I was there, so I call foul on that. <laughs> uh, and I didn't see any Bigfoots while I was driving, but we did drive through some really rugged country. So, Hey, what um, was the story of the road coming off that island? You had a picture on Facebook. Oh, yeah. Like the... Half well, we covered were, with water. We were out on Tybee Island, and, um, you know, the first night we got in, it was really beautiful. We we hung out, you know, and went down by the beach, and the only thing that was surprising that night was how windy it got. And the next day, we went down, swam in the morning. It, it was okay. It was freezing cold. I was in the water for like five minutes, and then we went into Savannah, walked around town, came back out late at night, swam some more. It was beautiful. Wake up Sunday morning. The sky is like black. Um, and I have a, uh, uh, like a warning, uh, notification on my phone screen that I've never seen before that says like high tide, <laughs> high tide warning. So like, I'm like, what? Whoa. I'm like, um, so <laughs> we're, we're, you know, I'm like, well, we better pack and get out of here as quick as we can. I checked the Facebook for Tybee Island. They said that some of the roads, uh, the, there's only one road off of Tybee Island, but some of the roads around the outskirts of the island were closed because the road were al- was already covered in water. And someone said that Tybee Road, which is the main road on and off the island, had been closed that morning. Um, so I'm like, crap, if we are like stuck on this island, I would love it, but I'd have to pretend like I didn't so my wife wouldn't think I was happy to be missing another day of work. But so, so we... Um, we drive, we're driving off the island, and as we're going, like, you can clearly see the roads are covering over with water. Uh, and I grabbed, like, a couple of pictures of it because it was crazy. I've never had that kind of experience before. Mm-hmm. But I guess after we passed over, that road did close for three hours later in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it closed again for eight hours the next morning, starting at, like, 4 a.m. It was closed from like 4 a.m. until noon wow. the next day or something. So is that typical? I mean, does that routinely happen? Do you think? It's, it's funny because like no one was acting like it was that crazy. Okay. I mean, I mean, there weren't signs up or anything. Like you would expect as you're driving off an island on the one road on and off the island, and the road is covering with water, that you would at least see some warning signs that were like, "Hey, danger! Maybe there's high tide." But yeah. No, it was high water like, or something. Yeah. No, wow. it was like being in in that movie about the end of the world, the day after tomorrow, or something <laughs> like like we're gonna die out here in a tsunami. So, no, it was cool. It was a really cool place. the The island's gorgeous. I I highly recommend it. 
if you're on the East Coast. It's 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 nice. I've been to like Kill Devil Hills and the Outer Banks, and then I've been to Hilton Head, and I've been to Ocean City and Rehoboth, and like so. I've been to a lot of East Coast towns, um, but this one was special. I don't know what it was. It was it was the history, and then kind of it's not crazy overrun with people, and it's not a lot of like touristy crap. So I really dug it. Um, but yeah, that's the story behind that. Nothing Bigfoot though. I didn't see a Bigfoot. We almost hit one with a car, but he, he jumped in the ocean, the high tide rode off on a surfboard. So he's crafty like that. He is elusive. They say, (laughs) so while I was gone, you guys had your own wild adventure, which was the, uh, annual Mothman festival down at Point Pleasant, West Virginia. You, you guys want to tell me what happened there? Anyone? Yeah, Mark. Well, we kind of all rolled into town at various times, but Brandon was there and uh, Shannon LeGrow and Sean Forker and uh, just a whole group of folks gathered for the whole ambiance of the Point Pleasant experience, which, you know, Andy likes to talk about as sort of Point Pleasant's fair. And I think he's pretty much, he's, he nailed it, uh, the description, because their downtown just transforms into a, a midway of sorts. Going down to the river, they've got bands down there playing, and, and all throughout the day, then really, if this is an element of the, the whole experience that you're into, then there are speakers at uh, the, I think the State Theater, on on Main Street in Point Pleasant. And so we were able to hear speakers like uh, Stan Gordon and uh, Ken Gerhard and, of course, Lyle Blackburn. And uh, we can talk a little bit about those if you want. But uh, Brandon went off on sort of a a solo jaunt of his own to track down the Mothman. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I went to... Well, I, w- I went into the Mothman Museum and I was trying to find tickets because I'd heard that they do these little tours up into the TNT area and they kind of show you where some of the main sightings happen and things. Went in there, of course, it was sold out being Saturday, you know, the day of. So I just got a little map that kind of shows you where kind of made the main sightings happen and I just kind of took on a little solo tour. The funny thing was it I actually went up there three times during the day. I don't know, if Mark, if you knew that. I went no. the first time. And well, you know, you find that there's a couple like main spots. There's like a there's a there's a pizza shop or a diner type of thing that, you know, when the, one of the original witnesses when they were they flew back into town and they ended up stopping there. It's now named something different. But I ended up stopping in there and taking a picture. And then there's the sh- stretch of road where the you know the, the original sighting witnesses claimed it was chasing them at over 100 miles an hour in the car down this this one stretch of road. Drove up there and then you and then you get up to the TNT area. Which is, you know, like if for the people that don't know, it's kind of a, it was a government testing area in World War II, and they store like explosives and things up there. And I, I think, Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's still currently even uh, an environmental disaster zone is what they kind of, it's still like because the the lakes and the things around there are all polluted. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, and some people think, you know, that's kind of the theory, some people's theory behind Mothman is, you know, it's just some kind of mutated creature from the, you know, and across the street from that area, there's these big giant power plants with smoke billing out of the towers and things. But, um, so yeah, I went up for the first time and you go down this street, very, very small, like one lane street and it goes straight back into the woods and you'll see, um, you know, basically like little 
little driveways into the woods, but then they're blocked off. And it, and it does that kind of in succession all the way down this road. And if you look at that on an aerial map, you'll see, you know, what they call the teen area is basically a set of like 10 or 12 roads that are no longer roads. They've been completely taken over by, by the woods. So I was like, okay, well, I was planning on going up there and just driving around and taking a look at, you know, at all the, the creepy gnomes and things like that. And I was like, I'm just going to go back into town. There's some speakers I want to see. And then I was like, oh, I can't, I can't come down here and not get out and explore. So I drove back up there. And then it started to rain. And then I wanted to see Lyle Blackburn's talk. And I was making these excuses. And I go, I'm probably never going to get to come down here again. I got to go and do this. So and I went back a third time. It was starting to get dark and parked my car, walked out and then went into the woods and did a little solo tour, which by yourself at, at night, never been in the area before. Here's where all the original Mothman sightings happen. You know, definitely a freaky, freaky experience too. Um, but, you know, and didn't see too much back there. It's super, it just looks like you're in the middle of nowhere now. You know, you're in the middle of the woods. But, the, you know, I, I was coming back to my car, and out of nowhere, this closed up, completely locked up um, government bunker thing popped out at me and it kind of scared me as if somebody was standing there <laughs> it was like a because you're just you know you're looking at all these woods and you're just in the middle of nowhere and then all of a sudden you see this completely kind of hidden under all the growth behind over it this government bunker with this door all locked up with five locks big looking thing just uh totally freaked me out i kind of started walking at a quicker pace on the way out <laughs> making myself sound like a wuss on these last <laughs> but it was really cool to go in that area and see the town itself and uh, it's a it's a beautiful area you know just the even the town sitting on like the, you know on the big river right there and the bridges and all that kind of stuff it's a it's a beautiful spot um uh, what's what's the turnout for this thing like hmm. um i think lyle posted on facebook or he he shared um the actual mothman festival's facebook and they said that eight thousand people had come out holy crap yeah yeah which is awesome. Yeah, I mean, we had like twelve to fifteen hundred for Minerva Monster Day, and I I was overwhelmed. Imagine like eight thousand people crowding into Minerva. Wow, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, and they had, point they had plus a lot more vendors and stuff. Right. Yeah, I mean, they're a test case of a of a location that's really embraced the legend. Mm -hmm. You know, um, yeah, I don't know how many local people, you know, how how they feel about it, how. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, like Jeff Wamsley, who runs the Mothman Museum, I mean, he's born and raised in Point Pleasant. And I think there's a real, you know, they've been doing that. How many, how many years is it? Like 14 or 15, some, something like yeah, that. It was like early 2000s. Yeah. And, and I think they're at the point now where they, they see how important it really is are revitalizing their downtown right such as it is um this is a really big deal and people throughout the year from all over the world come to the you know a place that's not exactly off of any main expressway it's easy to get to but because of what allegedly happened there um people are drawn to it <laughs> embrace your monsters that's what yeah. i say <laughs> exactly um so who did you hear speak and you know what did you what did you think of the speaks the speaks how'd you how'd you feel about those speaks they were all really good the ones that i heard and i would say you know of of the big three uh stan gordon 
Ken Gerhard and Lyle Blackburn. I really, really enjoyed Ken Gerhard's presentation. Uh, he went off of the outline of his book, Flying Humanoids, and really got into detail, especially about... Cranes. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, it was an hour of PowerPoint <laughs> pictures of various cranes. That'd be amazing. Sandhill crane. Here's the blue heron. It was captivating. Yeah. You had to be there, though. Yeah. No, but very it, peaceful. Was, it was very <laughs> Everyone was holding hands by yeah, the Yeah, that's end. exactly what everyone wants at the Mothman Festival, is yeah. a peaceful, a peaceful uh, talk about cranes. Yeah. The thing that's interesting, though, to me is that... Uh, of the speakers I heard, they really didn't talk about Mothman specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Lyle talked about Lizard Man for the vast majority of his presentation. Ken Gerhard talked about flying humanoids, of course, incorporated the Mothman story into that, but it wasn't the focus either. Stan Gordon talked about the Kecksburg incident, which has nothing to do with Mothman whatsoever. I mean, it's a, a downed UFO whole story and he's I mean he's the man when it comes to that case but um, it's in that respect it's starting to sort of transcend the Mothman story because after a while you know where can you go with the the Mothman it's a very self-contained sort of series of sightings Mm -hmm. and you can speculate about it. it. Has a tragic ending, and somebody commented who was there. You know, you realize this is sort of like a street carnival, circusy atmosphere. But really, the climax of the story is the tragic death of many, many of people, local yeah. people. Right. So there is this undercurrent, uh, kind of a, a tragic undercurrent to the whole thing. But but to my other point, there's just a, you know, you can only speculate about mothman and push that out so far and then i think you know you're starting to see that now in the the special guests that it's becoming more multifaceted than just let's talk about mothman for two full days there's lots more things people want to discuss cool i want to go next year i next year i'm not scheduling anything for that weekend so all right you should go i was i was i would have liked to have had you to come up to that area, TNT area with me. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. It's, it's, it's a story too, that's been explored so much, but I still feel like there's something there. It'd be fun to someday do something about it. I don't know. Um, all right, let's, let's get into this email. Cause I think this will probably take up the rest of the show. Um, this is from, do you have this email in front of you? Mark? When, no. when was it sent? Oh, the all the way back on September 8th. So almost a month ago, I'll read okay. it. Uh, it's from David, oh, yeah. David, uh, David Moore. gives David M. Yeah. David D. Dave, Moore. David, David M. M. Let's just give his whole name, <laughs> his address. <laughs> uh, well, here's his email. Okay. Let's not do that. Uh, oh, geez. Uh, I'm writing to you to mention a possible factor regarding accounts of violent Bigfoot encounters in history. While the debate within the Sasquatch community revolving around acts of violence perpetrated by alleged Bigfoot continues, there is no need for mutual exclusivity in the realm of violent versus peaceful. A close analogy may be found in wild hogs, which spread havoc across the the American South. 
there are specimens which are clearly non-confrontational as well as those which are bold and violent. However, in recent years, scientists and hunters alike have noticed a sharp decline in violent encounters with wild hogs. One hypothesis which has been put forward revolves around the tactics historically used by hunters to kill hogs. Hunters would use dogs or personal confrontation to lure pigs into either a defensive or offensive posture to line up a shot. Likewise, hogs, hogs, geez, using open fields for feeding and travel were killed off. Both of these kinds of hunting tactics are becoming less successful as hogs flee more readily and stick to thick cover, at least during the day. As a result, the hypothesis states that hogs, namely boars, which demonstrated violent tendencies or a willingness to traverse open fields, were killed, limiting such genetic transference and increasing the breeding success of more timid and cover-prone pigs that previously had trouble producing. It is entirely possible, should North American great apes exist, along with other cryptids, that their genetic history may include a standard for violence or other features that brought them into confrontation with humans, but resulted in their extermination, i.e. possess and native war posses, sorry, although, i.e. posses and native war bands, and led to the proliferation of less confrontational and more, don't you laugh, and more <laughs> reclusive genetic codes. This hypothesis, of course, does not account for individual personalities that may develop in addition to genetic predisposition or other environmental factors. It is also possible that certain life stages or the activation of long dormant code may result in increased levels of violence within a community previously docile. Given the alleged intelligence of these beings, as well as the fact that many anecdotes involving retaliatory behavior, i.e. Sasquatch only attacking after being shot at or attacked by dogs, it is entirely possible that behavior may change or be set based on experience and communication of experience, in other words, long-term perception, and even culture within a community. Uh, David. He also had a couple questions for the North, a North American Wood Ape Conservancy, so if anyone from the NAWAC is listening, have your friends at the NAWAC considered leaving fermented fruit out to be ingested? Animals, just like humans, get drunk, resulting in a, in a decrease. <laughs> Animals, just like humans, get drunk, resulting in a decrease in inhibition, which is exactly what you need. Also, it may result in the nasty big, Bigfoot hangover and no small amount of pooking. Thank you for that callback, by the way. PPS, seriously, though, I hope they are careful as being dismembered by clan of apes isn't a fun way to go. Should their target not be alone as thought? Or should the bullet fail to result in a one-shot stop, which is common? PPS, pooking. Oh, David, that's the best letter we've ever gotten. I don't know why. I, the second I'm reading about i've never thought of drunken apes like wood apes but that is simultaneously hilarious and terrifying like <laughs> something about it like an eight foot tall drunk bigfoot would be something to see let me tell you what if he's a mean drunk that's what i'm saying but he could be just sort of a happy-go-lucky drunk bigfoot too you never know yeah uh -huh. Um, so, honestly, essentially what he's saying in, in, is a much more uh, articulate way than I think I have is basically what I've been saying, which is that I th I th I'm sure there have, if these things were to exist, if they exist, I'm sure there would be violent encounters with them because they're a massive creature that lives in the woods. I mean, unless they're, 
I mean, even if you're going with like the forest people hypothesis, um, it, it would make sense for there to be some sort of violent interaction with them occasionally. Like it just, it would naturally follow that that would take place given what humans do to animals when they encounter them, you know, in the woods. Am I wrong? No, I don't no, think I so. Um, Go ahead, I was going to say, the other thing that he mentioned in the in the letter, it seemed like it seemed like his point was, you know, using the hog analogy and things like that, was that um, if these things do exist, then they have evolved over time through contact with us over the millennia. They've evolved, you know, certain measures to keep themselves hidden, which I think is an interesting concept because it kind of it would kind of explain why they, you know, avoid contact with us at all costs for the most part, other than some interesting cases where they seem to be very curious and things like that. But the only thing I wanted to say, it, it just made me instantly think of, I've heard so many accounts of people saying that before they even saw it, they knew something was there. They had like this weird, I don't know if you, I'm sure you guys have heard that in accounts, right? Mm-hmm. Where people get this tingly feeling and their hair stands up on the back of their neck. Um, they just have this weird feeling like they can, it's almost as if we can sense that they're around in some way. And I, I don't even know if I heard it on an episode of something, but at some point, but I think actually someone said it was, it's like, it's almost as if we've had in our distant past, a lot of run-ins with these, these creatures, if they exist. And we've somehow evolved this kind of sixth sense about them. Like we kind of, we know that we don't interact well kind of a thing. And we've kind of had this weird sense about them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Is that just, am I just going off on a weird tangent? No, no, <laughs> no. But how does that relate to the, to, to them eating and beating us nearly to death? Well, what he was saying in his letter with the hog thing was that mm-hmm. hogs, They've evolved. Oh, gotcha. Um, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. They've evolved to be better at evading humans. And he yeah. was saying with that analogy, I think, that if Bigfoot exists, that they evolved um, to also be good at evading us, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yes. And so I was makes... just saying, yeah. yeah, yeah, I was saying, so maybe we've also kind of evolved over time, if they do exist, some kind of weird... Um, sense about them, you know. Like I said, I've heard in many accounts where people, before they even seen it, they knew something was wrong. They could sense something. They could mm-hmm. sense. So, just kind of an interesting side note, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Now, Mark, what do you what do you think about this? I don't know. <laughs> the The jury's out for me. I mean, that I, I I have nothing to disagree with in what I hear. Right. Um, it, it it's logical it it makes a lot of sense the one thing that does occur to me is that if you just trace the history of reports in north america it does seem like and that you know there are a preponderance of violent encounter type reports and uh, the the longer time goes on those tend to recede into the background and you have more of the the peaceful encounters, and that's completely anecdotal, mm-hmm. but it does suggest that, you know, as as North America was being settled, you, much like the scenario that is described in the letter, the initial encounters started off violent and and messy, didn't end very well, and uh, over time, the, you know, these creatures 
figured out it was just better to try and avoid us, which is, is somewhat understandable. Um, so I don't know if, you know, and in other areas, you know, we've talked about how Bigfoot sightings and reports have sort of morphed down through the decades. And is that a reflection of what's actually happening or what people want to believe about these creatures? You know, um, get to a point culturally where we'd rather befriend them than see them as the boogeyman. That's an interesting question in itself. Is it a reflection of reality or is it more driven by what we would like to, you know, what we'd prefer to think about these creatures that may be in the woods? I don't know. Right. I I I mean I I take the same tactic with this that I always have with everything and even this particular violent Bigfoot thing before. I mean it does it to me it makes perfect sense for there to be violent Bigfoot encounters and it, I I guess the wild hog thing I do think animals are smart a lot of animals are are rather intelligent and given time um I think they can you know learn to fear humans. I fear humans. I'm terrified of humans. Mm-hmm. I mean, I see I see humans often and I am also torn between attacking them and running into the woods. So, <laughs> yeah. I kind of identify with the hogs at this point. Yeah. Which is which is something I always have. But uh, <laughs> uh but yeah, I I great letter and much more uh articulate than than what I was trying to say on the other episode when it comes to, you know, there there being plenty of room for both. You know, like violent and just because I'm not saying the the fact that I shoot down a lot of the like Bigfoot beheading people stories doesn't mean that I don't believe that there is a history of violent Bigfoot encounters because obviously there is a history of them and I'm a big fan of history. So I know that they're out there. Yeah. Well, and nature is violent. I mean, that's just the reality of the situation and whether it's defending itself and its family group against human beings or other wild animals i mean they're more than well equipped if mm-hmm. if the sighting reports are to be believed so right. you know they they've got skills necessary to defend themselves when they feel threatened mm-hmm. you know if they're biological animals then why wouldn't they right All right. Uh, I think that's going to wrap up for tonight. Thanks for joining us this week, Brandon. And uh, yeah, and if you're if you're just listening to this and and haven't yet, check out the Beast of Whitehall trailer. Um, It is up on the YouTube channel, which is YouTube.com/smalltownmonsters. So, thanks for tuning in. We'll be back in the summer of 1978. A creature. Stirred. And when I got out of the car and met the people at the house who were obviously distressed. From the creator of Sasquatch, a podcast about Bigfoot. Um, it was chained to a doghouse and, and it was found like out of its collar and, you know, dead. The first film in the Small Town Monsters series. We chased this thing down. Minerva Monster, now available at smalltownmonsters.com or Vimeo On Demand.
Join the conversation at facebook.com slash sasswhat. Find us on Twitter by using the hashtag sasswhat, or you can find me on Twitter at Seth Breeds Love. Mark Matsky is on Twitter at Reverend Matsky. Send your letters to sasswhatmail at gmail.com and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Mm-hmm.